Hello, and welcome to our quarterly podcast on financial transactions and transfer pricing. During this podcast, we have discussions with our specialists of the PwC network on relevant topics in, in our area. And today, my guests are Martin Cazot of PwC US and Tony Coivula of PwC Finance. And I myself, I'm David Ledeur of PwC Belgium. Today's topic is tap capacity and transfer pricing. Because as you likely know, when you talk about it, the company financing, it's not only a matter of arm's length interest rates, but also the amount of debt should be arm's length. And, and this can be linked to uh, what the OECD is calling the accurate delineation of the actual transaction. And just for the sake of completeness, we know that uh, quite some countries have also specific interest limitation rules, typically based on, on, on EBITDA. But uh, very often, these specific interest limitation rules do not preclude tax authorities for also testing the debt capacity from an arm's length perspective. The question to you, Martin, the US have a long history of looking at debt capacity. Is there a specific legal basis to do this or is it more based on case law and practices? Yeah, thanks, David. And indeed, long, long history, different set of regulations around financing in general and various court cases around the debt capacity or the debt equity issue. Um, interestingly, um, it, this issue is not addressed in Section 42 and the Treasury Transfer Pricing Regulations. Um, but in, in the U.S., the ability of a taxpayer to deduct interest on debt from a related party is contingent on whether the debt is considered bona fide. Um, or in other words, right, it is, is it true commercial debt that a third party would have entered into? Or is it some other form of capital like equity, right? The issue is described in Section 385 of the Internal Revenue Code, but the resolution of whether an area company debt obligation is bona fide has generally been considered in the context of principles established in U.S. tax court decisions, right, U.S. case law. And the approaches taken by the courts have varied and are different, but it can be best described as fact and circumstances driven. Um, so an evaluation of quantitative and qualitative elements has generally been considered in, in, in different court cases, which the analysis, one could say that are consistent or even based upon insights from rating agencies, commercial lenders, and, and overall their analytical approaches that are based on a review of the markets and financial matrix that are relevant to the markets. Um, for example, you know, in various cases, a list, you know, one financial ratio was considered. Um, and by ratios, I mean, you know, think about debt to equity, debt to capital, interest coverage type ratios, or financial covenant ratios you will find in arm's length debt facilities. Um, but also, you know, on the qualitative side, right, like um, the existence of an intercompany agreement, the terms and conditions within that agreement, or the, you know, or the relevant terms of the debt instrument. The ability of the borrower to repay and, and other factors have been relevant that have been considered in, in, in case law. But, you know, again, you know, primarily driven by principles established by the courts and based on evaluation of different quantitative and qualitative factors is what drives the issue around the capacity. Okay, so in, in US, three important numbers. Really. 163J and 482, but also a lot of case law. Um, in Europe, Tony, 
if you look to the various European countries, is there also specific uh, laws on this, or is it more practice based on general principles? Thanks, David. Usually, um, the debt capacity is included in the local general transfer pricing provision. But in some countries, we have seen that more detailed uh, guidance issued by the tax authorities is, is also coming. Uh, but let's say that specific rules or, or guidance is still relatively rare in Europe. However, we are seeing more attention to be paid by the European tax authorities on debt quantum questions especially in connection to financial transactions tax audits. Um, recent attention in Europe is at least partially caused by the, the new Chapter 10 on financial transactions in the OECD guidelines, but potentially other reasons and developments in the, in the local tax codes as well. Therefore, it's more practice driven than by the legislation that compared to the United States or other countries, but we are seeing more and more guidance issued by the tax authorities also in certain European jurisdictions. Okay, thanks. Yeah, and you referred to the OECD guidelines in chapter 10. Uh, what's a bit surprising to me is that uh, even in the very old versions of these OECD guidance, there was already uh, some reference to, uh, to equity uh, whether that should be considered a debt or more like an equity-ish type of uh, financing for transfer pricing purposes. Uh, but in the past, I don't think it was uh, used a lot in, in Europe. So this is a bit the theory. Uh, now, Martin, if we have to do this in, in practice, uh, what to look at, how to analyze things, well, what are the items you, you typically cover in such an analysis? Yeah, thanks, David. This is a great question. And, and... Let me say that this is the area where you will see that the approach may may vary by country, right? Or or, or maybe better, the predominance of certain analysis, right, or, or principles may vary by country. But in the U.S., we generally look at various factors or variables, right, consistent with the principles um, established in case law, but also how markets typically look at this issue, right? Um, keeping, keeping in mind, and I think the framework is important here, that the objective here is that from a transfer pricing economics perspective, right, the, the, the objective here is to assist in demonstrating that a borrowing is commercial, right, it's bona fide from a U.S. perspective, and that the expected financial performance of that borrower, right, is consistent with independent borrowers borrowing at arm's length. Um, like I said, various factors to consider, but I think generally, um, the quantitative analysis, you know, can be grouped or summarized under three main questions, if you will. Um, and I'll cover this in, not in a particular order. I think the relevance may vary by country, like I said. But, in the, you know, you will look at, you know, question one, I'd say, is would the borrower want to capitalize itself with the stated level of debt, right? Especially consider his financial performance against peers. So this involves an evaluation of the borrower against comparable peers. And by that we mean, you know, peers in the industry, in the broader sector, financial peers, but not necessarily in the same industry. And looking at financial performance ratios, and these ratios are gonna sound common to everybody, like interest coverage, you know, leverage, cash flows, profitability type ratios. Um, the second question is around 
analyzing whether the borrower could obtain this level of, of financing given current market conditions, right? So this is a little bit of a lender's perspective, if you will, right? So it's analyzing current debt market conditions and lending multiples based on recent transactions. You know, are companies obtaining debt at, at this level in, in the marketplace today or at the time of issuance? Um, the third question is around cash flow serviceability and whether the borrower would have the capacity to service its debt obligations, right? Including repayment of interest and principal over the lending horizon. Uh, and this is a you know a fundamental test. I, I mentioned it briefly before, but you know it's a test around the ability to repay, right? Based on projected free cash flows. And you know I think when the when the preference, predominance, or reliance on a particular test may differ, I think generally we see this issue analyzed quantitatively under these three broad um, kind of variables. And with the logic, I think the logic is important, right? But the logic behind this is that. If the borrower financial performance is comparable to peers, you know, test one that I covered, and is the borrower performance or ratios, you know, comparable to those observed in the marketplace, test two. And we can also show that via cash flow analysis that the borrower can service its debt obligations, test three, then the results would suggest that, you know, based on this quantitative measures, if third parties can obtain financing, the borrower should be able to obtain financing under similar circumstances. And therefore, we have established a quantitative analysis, a quantitative framework supporting, you know, the commercial bona fide nature of the debt issuance. Okay, thanks. Uh, Tony, I know you have done a, an informal sounding within the Pyrocinia uh, network in, in Europe to have kind of a feeling of uh, how the various tax authorities uh, approach this. So what is the what are the key takeaways? If I ask you the similar question as I did to Martin. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, basically, in Europe, there isn't as, as established practice on how to demonstrate that the debt level is at arm's length. But, but we see a trend that there is certain ratios such as debt to EBITDA, loan to value, loan to cost, debt to equity, interest coverage, as Martin mentioned, uh, that are quite commonly mentioned in the network and, and used in, in the analysis. But ultimately, obviously, it depends on the on the sector where the where taxpayer is operating. And for example, in the UK, they have the could and would uh, test. So could the taxpayer pay the, the debt? And what is whether it makes sense for the taxpayer to to have them that amount of debt in its balance sheets. So it depends a lot on the how established practice is in the in the said jurisdiction and how how sophisticated the tax authorities are. But in practice, this is something that is not as established as in the states. But certainly, certain uh, ratios, for example, are visible throughout the European countries. Yeah, and, and I hear, uh, although it's less uh, developed, it's not as long as in the US, I hear a bit the same type of test coming back to so the goods and the woods. Uh, so good, it goes back a bit to depth, serviceability, and, and the woods. It's how you compare to uh, to the industry. Yeah, as you also rightfully say, some ratios are more generic, and depth EBITDA is a generally used uh, ratio, while loan-to-value is typically for real estate transaction loan-to-cost. It's more for real estate development and the like, so it's it's also industry-specific. Uh, um, 
also want to chip in on uh, uh, an Australian proposal I've read recently. So we don't have any one from Asia Pack on uh, on the podcast, uh, but it's as relevant I think in in that region. And what I've read is about draft legislation issued by the Australian authorities. So it's it's out in the open. It's uh, they request some public comment. So everything I say here, it's it's public information. And I think it's it's relevant for two things for the broader uh, world. It's first of all, Australia, Australian tax authorities typically tend to be a forerunner in all these things. So whenever something happens in Australia, quite some other countries follow afterwards. And secondly, this draft legislation would already be applicable as from the 1st of July this year. So it's, it's really uh, uh, imminent. Content-wise, I've noted some changes or replacements of, of the current rules. In the past, there was a safe harbor rule where you could uh, justify a debt quantum up to 60% of the assets. That would be replaced by 30% EBITDA rule. So in line with OECD action four, there would also be a, a kind of group carve-out based on the group's interest EBITDA uh, ratio. Thirdly, you would also be able to justify a certain level of debt if you could make a direct link with third-party debt, so even if it's not direct third-party debt, but indirectly, and you can justify it's fully used for the Australian operations, then you could also uh, use that. Although it's less clear uh, for me at this stage, my understanding is that these specific rules do not preclude a more generic uh, transfer price analysis of that capacity. Now, as you hear, uh, my accent, I'm not Australian at all. So uh, if you uh, want to have confirmation or more details, I would highly recommend to uh, reach out to uh, our Australian colleagues. Um, maybe back to you, Martin. You, you mentioned debt serviceability or cash serviceability. It's typically based on forecasting of, of the borrower. So this provides quite some uh, interesting information. Now, debt capacity is one of the terms, conditions that you should be able to, to justify where it's, it's reasonable. Uh, but there's some other terms and conditions that could also be looked at by tax authorities, like the maturity, whether it's a bullet or an amortizing loan, some tranching and, and so forth. Can this, this debt serviceability testing also be used for these other terms and conditions? Yeah, I think there is a good question. I, I think there are when I think about cash flow serviceability and the, this test, I th there are two main points I think to think about or to or to factor in when it comes to this type of analysis. I, I think the first one is that you know it's indeed an important factor considered by U.S. courts, right? In, in particular, the ability or the failure um, of the debtor to repay, right? There's reference to that effect in court cases, and I think similarly, Chapter 10 of the OECD guidelines, I think that addresses or mentions the importance um, of establishing the ability of the debtor to repay on the due date, right? Or to seek, I think the OECD mentions a postponement, so like a refinancing um, alternative. So hence, you know, it's an important variable to evaluate and consider, right? Whether it's it's the primary or the secondary approach, I think that's up for debate, but I think we would all agree it's an important um, you know, tests to to consider. The other point here to to keep present is, and I think to your point, the cash flow analysis it could be very helpful to support the overall structuring of the financing, right? For example, when you're evaluating the appropriate duration, right? Sometimes you can refer to the cash flow in order to determine, you know, what's the appropriate duration of this instrument. 
or or also when it comes to tranching considerations, right? When the company wants to, you know, break out the debt in different tranches, well, the cash flow analysis will help inform, you know, how to structure the tranches, when it would be a good time for each of the tranches to come due. And I think other considerations, right, come to mind, like prepayment options or other options within you know, company arrangements, right? And how would, could that be modeled via the via the cash flow analysis? Okay. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, should be able to demonstrate you can pay the interest, uh, but also to uh, repay the, the principal amount. Uh, and this often uh, you've raised with some discussions, and, and I know some tax authorities they look at it very narrow. Uh, so they basically expect you that you generate the cash to simply repay the loan, uh, while you can also repay a loan by obtaining a new loan at the maturity of the initial loan. So basically refinancing. Um, what you see in the open market, it's it's seldom that uh, groups fully repay their debt. Typically, they're kind of continuous refinancing, uh, trying to uh, to achieve a certain debt uh, leverage that they consider optimal. Yeah, I think it goes back to the commercial nature, right? And how the markets look at this. And, you know, certainly refinancing options and considerations are, are relevant in this case. Absolutely. Um, yeah, some loans are, have a fixed rate, others have a floating rate. Uh, since uh, a couple of months, we are living in a, uh, an environment where interest rates have increased uh, very strongly for the first time in, uh, in more than a decade, almost a decade and a half. I, I think in this type of, of, of analysis, if you use a floating rate, some type of stress testing could also be useful to demonstrate that uh, even if interest rate would go up a bit, based on, on how markets uh, see the, the market further evolve, that your debt serviceability is not uh, is not endangered. So you can still uh, confirm this. Um, assume that your debt capacity is reassessed by tax authorities on a tax audit. Is it just a fact of life, or is there something you can do around this, uh, Martin? Uh, like maps, APAs, and so forth. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, I, I'll come back to like what can be done in a sec, but but I I think this putting in a little bit in context is helpful too. But like what I think it's interesting in the controversy space and how the audits and questioning is evolving around this issue. Um, in my experience, right, and I'm a I'm a TP practitioner, right, so. Generally, the arm's length nature of the interest rate is still what's primarily challenged, right? But at least in my experience, the interesting development is that the discussions are not stopping there. And we're seeing, you know, the discussions evolving into the debt capacity area, right? And while you be, you've been answering questions around interest rate, questions are raised on the quantum, right? And the amount of that and whether the borrower can support that amount. And, and we see this in U.S. audits, but we, more interestingly, we're we seeing in, in kind of more cross-border type controversy, like map cases, for example. Um, in terms of your question on, you know, what can be done, I, I think the best approach or the best practice I generally suggest is, you know, prepare robust documentation at the time of issuance, right? At the time or as close as possible to the time the transaction is entered into. And not after the fact, once the debt has been issued, right? And there's not a lot you can do other than supporting what has already been, been established. And by that documentation, I mean, you know, supporting the arm's length nature of the interest rate, but also um, the debt capacity of the borrower, right? To support the contemplated level of debt in the in the inner company arrangement. Okay. And with this, uh, we're almost at the end of uh, the podcast. What, what I've learned from the discussion is that 
that capacity is something that should be looked at, even if countries have uh, specific interest limitation rules, which are more mechanical. Um, on, on how to do it, a lot of different approaches in various countries, but I kind of see two categories of tests. The first is linked to the serviceability of, of the debt, so doing some forecasting uh, and based on some financial ratios to see whether you can actually service uh, the debt. And then the, the second category is what you refer to as the wood test. Look at peers, look at comparables to see that uh, you can see similar leverage uh, ratios in, in the market. And to end on a more positive note, uh, when tax authorities apply interest limitation rules, these are non-deductible, it's full stop. Maybe it's on carry forwards, but it's it's final. If tax authorities, however, uh, reassess your arm's length debt capacity, you can still avoid it about taxation. So typically uh, you can uh, put this into map, but why not also consider uh, APAs, especially if you're talking about very, very sizable transactions. And with this, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and, and Tony Martin, our, our speakers, for sharing their insights. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.